Hello, welcome to the Crisis of Civilization podcast, Series 1, Episode 3. I'm Dean Puckett. In this episode, Nafis speaks to Mike Lofgren, the author of the 2006 book The Deep State, The Fall of the Constitution, and The Rise of the Shadow Government. Lofgren is a former Republican congressional aide who spent 28 years as a congressional staff member before retiring in 2011. During the last 16 years of his career, he held a high-level national security clearance as a senior analyst for the House and Senate Budget Committees. His position gave him a first-hand insider's perspective on a wide range of US government policies. From the lucrative bank bailouts to accelerating Pentagon spending, from botched disaster relief after Hurricane Katrina, to the contradictions of the war on terror. He retired in 2011 and wrote at the time that he was, and I quote, appalled at the headlong rush of Republicans to embrace policies that are deeply damaging to this country's future and contemptuous of the feckless, craven incompetence of the Democrats in their half-hearted attempts to stop them. In 2012, he published a book, The Party Is Over, How Republicans Went Crazy, Democrats Became Useless and the Middle Class Got Shafted. In recent months, there has been much talk across the media about the so-called deep state. With a few rare exceptions, most of it has been uninformed and dismissive. It may have even come across as abstract or conspiratorial. Earlier this month, Nafiz spoke with Lofgren and shared many of his extraordinary insights in an article entitled Trump is creating a deep state 2.0, but it might crash the economy. And we'll leave a little link for that article at the bottom of the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. It really will help us to reach a wider audience. So now without further ado, here's Nafiz Ahmed's conversation with Mike Lofgren. first simple question really is um, what is the deep state and how did you discover it as someone who right. you worked inside the political system for so many years how did you discover the deep state well I discovered it uh, in the run up to the war in Iraq after the uh, 9-11 terrorist attack um, it was pretty evident that the proximate cause of the problem was coming out of Afghanistan from a radical, apocalyptic, uh, Islamic religious cult. Um, And yet the George W. Bush administration uh, was somehow tying this to a secular, gangsterish family business uh, in Iraq, known as the Saddam Hussein uh, and his son's regime, uh, which was at total loggerheads with Islamic extremism uh, because they didn't want them cutting in on their business. And it was quite logical, if you paid attention to the news, uh, that that was the case. We also had people like Scott Ritter, who was the American uh, military person who worked for uh, the U.N. weapons inspectors, who said, 
our best estimate based on being on the ground and checking things out for you know a long time uh several years is there are no weapons of mass destruction but we had this huge organized campaign uh that swept the media along uh, in favor of invading Iraq. And that's what caused the little uh, light to go on in my skull. Uh, Already in December of 2001, U.S. forces were fighting the Battle of Tora Bora, and Osama bin Laden escaped because there were too few troops it was like trying to use a sieve uh, to catch uh, <laughs> something very small, yeah. and it was going through the interstices. Uh, yet, at the same time, budget documents were coming across my desk, uh, budget supplementals that indicated um, this huge buildup going on in the Persian Gulf. Uh a thousand miles away from Afghanistan. And that's what made me realize uh, there's something seriously wrong. And Congress more or less sleepwalked right into it if they weren't cheerleading it themselves. I saw the evidence. Uh, I had a security clearance. It wasn't convincing to me. Um, but somehow it convinced them. So I concluded um, there are powers that be uh, in the state and outside the state that push these things to fruition uh, regardless of the evidence uh, and regardless of whether it's wise long-term policy for the American public, and that view, after eight years of a debacle in Iraq, was merely reinforced, along with the fact that the new president, Obama, allowed himself to be uh, basically mousetrapped uh, by his advisors into a silly um and immoral, I would argue, invasion or in intervention in Libya, which has caused no end of problems there. So Obama was supposed to be the anti-Bush, but they ended up having similar foreign policies in some respects. So that I concluded there's a definite continuity there. So, still with us, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept, speaking to us from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Glenn, explain what the deep state is and respond. The deep state, although there's no precise or scientific definition, generally refers to the agencies in Washington that are permanent power factions. They stay and exercise power, even as presidents who are elected come and go. They typically exercise their power in secret, in the dark, and so they're barely subject to democratic accountability if they're subject to it at all. It's agencies like the CIA, the NSA, and the other intelligence agencies 
that are essentially designed to disseminate disinformation and deceit and propaganda and have a long history of doing not only that, but also have a long history of the world's worst war crimes, atrocities, and death squads. This is who not just people like Bill Kristol, but lots of Democrats are placing their faith in, are trying to empower, are cheering for. I've heard you define the deep state before, but I'd appreciate it if you could just for a few moments explain what you mean when you use this term deep state to describe that phenomena that you were, that you were seeing. Well, a little, you know, elaboration on what I was saying before will probably do that. Um, what I had described when I talked to you about the run-up to the war in Iraq and so forth sounds like what Eisenhower was saying about the military-industrial complex, you know, decades before, right? Nevertheless, yeah. I concluded then after the 2008 crash uh, that there was more to it. That when you had Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, and uh, Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, come on a, I think it was a Thursday or Friday afternoon, uh, to uh, the Capitol Hill. And I was there after work. Session was over. But I could feel that there was something going on. There was kind of a buzz in the air. They were holding a meeting with the leadership of the House and the Senate and telling them, if you don't do what we say, in other words, just throw unlimited money at the banks, stop the crash, we won't have an economy on Monday. And it struck me as the same sort of fear-mongering that went on in the financial sector, as was done about Saddam's alleged weapons of mass destruction, to stampede Congress into giving them carte blanche. So it's not unlike, you know, the Glenn Greenwalds of the world, who seem to define it as the intelligence agencies, it's a much bigger thing. It's a public-private partnership, if you want to put it euphemistically, um. among the principal government <clears throat> agencies, uh, mainly in national security and finance, with Wall Street, uh, the defense contractors, Silicon Valley is very important because it's the biggest source of new wealth as well as the technology that the NSA would be totally lost without. Uh, NSA and CIA uh, provide seed funding for a lot of what Silicon Valley has done for decades through front companies and little venture capital shops out there. So we have these people like Peter Thiel, who's this great big libertarian, 
who wants to engage in seasteading, where you would have offshore platforms that are sovereign, and he can indulge in his Ayn Rand fantasies. And yet one of his companies, Palantir, was started with CIA venture capital. Yeah. And I think people like Condoleezza Rice are on the board. So uh, that's how I concluded. Libertarianism is just phony. Would you be fair to say that the deep state is is kind of like a, it's a it's a system. It's not it's not just um, you know it's not a, it's not really a you know a state as such. It's actually a system which encompasses. Right. If the series of coalitions of people, and it's not a conspiracy. The names of the people we know. Um, we know who Lloyd Blankfein is, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who now has dozens of his alumni throughout the government, including in the incoming president's uh, uh, economic team. Um, I would say that Trump's cabinet has so many billionaires in it that it makes George W. Bush's old cabinet look like a Bolshevik workers' council. It is just (laughs) unbelievable. So to conclude, it's just the military is wrong. It's a sort of series of interlocking uh, interest groups who sort of coalesce the same way, you know, people with power, money, and influence always gravitate to one another. Hmm. Adam Smith said, you know, 225 years ago or more, that there's never a meeting among businessmen, a private meeting that takes place, but that sooner or later they get around to some conspiracy against the public interest. If anyone had ever told me a few years ago that we would ever read headlines like these in American newspapers, I would have called him crazy. Yet here we are reading them. In the middle of the 20th century in the United States of America, hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys and girls are becoming hopeless every year. It's fantastic, it's unbelievable, and it's terrible, but it's true. You know, obviously, you must still have friends and colleagues who work within the deep state. As you said... As oh, you they're said all loaded. You know, my, my uh, sort of acquaintanceships and friendships are loaded with people who are alumni of the deep state. Yeah. Now, as Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when he's being paid not to understand it. Hmm. Unless you have a very keen sense of irony and eye for detail, you are simply lost in what Max Weber called the iron cage of bureaucracy. You adjust character to the uh, expectations of your peers and your superiors. And I think most people do. And they lose the the perspective 
of the overall picture. I worked on Capitol Hill for three decades. There are a lot of, you know, bright, ambitious people there. Um, but a lot of them I came to view as sort of legislative mechanics. You know, they knew how to write an appropriations bill, for instance, but were they looking at the bigger picture of what is all this for? You know, qui yeah. bono, who benefits, and at whose uh, expense? Really? So the actors in this thing are not, you know, a cabal of Illuminati who are hatching things uh, in the dark of night. It's mainly people who are trying to get their mortgage paid. You know, that may be different for some senior operative. But for the most part, they think of themselves as just normal patriotic Americans uh, trying to buy shoes for the kids. Yeah. What would you say about the more, I mean, in your experience, the more powerful members of the deep state? I mean, to, to, do, is there a sense in which they they understand that there is a deep state and that they're a part of it? Or, or do they still operate from within the sense that, no, that they're a part of their own coalition or their own group? So, do, I mean, do well, you, think that you know, that it, sense, I suppose yeah. it varies with the individual. I mean, they all know which side their bread is buttered on. Uh, and what is expected behavior and what is not. Uh, the American psychologist Irving Janus called this groupthink, and they indulge in that a lot. The foreign policy establishment, of course, knows what the correct answer is. Uh, this forward-leaning sort of militarized internationalism where America shows quote-unquote leadership is the preferred model. And if you don't believe in that, uh, they sort of look at you askance, like you've grown two heads or something. All out for victory once more. Yes, I've been around when needed, on the farm, on the battlefield, yes, and in the factory. I am the spirit of a free America. As you've kind of described so eloquently, actually, even some of the powerful and less powerful people within it, they don't necessarily know that it exists in the way it does. Right, it's sort of the group of blind men uh, describing the elephant. They only see what's directly, or see or sense, what's directly in front of them, and not the whole picture. Um, and, again, I, I sort of stress, it's not a conspiracy. And a very big complex society like the United States is practically ungovernable, not because of any political or sociological peculiarities about the country, but just because of a structural thing. It's so big, so complex, 
that underlying institutions become like your heartbeat or your breathing. They're automatic. And this isn't necessarily bad. Uh, you want Federal Aviation Administration inspectors to show up to work regardless and inspect the airplanes you're going to fly on. You want the Centers for Disease Control, regardless of what directives come from Washington, to be on the lookout for Ebola virus. Um, you want the military to be on guard against the surprise attack. Of course you want those things, but then if you empower an organization like the military that's so heavily funded, uh, it's sort of they go on to this autopilot. They gradually sort of self-organize their own agenda, um, which may be quite independent of what uh, policymakers who are freshly elected may want. The Pentagon is one of the most fascinating, evolved bureaucracies in the world. It is so huge, so cumbersome, that it can only work in some respects by bureaucrats working from the bottom up, just keeping it going, following their own little routines, or what's the bureaucratic imperative for his particular field office or organization. When you went public with your first book, I mean, how did people around you that you knew who, who actually, in a way, were part of all of this, how did they react? I mean, did they think that you were... What did they think of you coming out and saying all this stuff? Was it a revelation? Well, the non-thoughtful you know? ones uh, weren't reading my book anyway. Um <laughs> The ones that I, you know, like and trust and so forth, um, they mainly agreed with me. I mean, you can get into all kinds of definitional disputes, which I don't really care to do, about which agency is part of the deep state and shouldn't you include this or exclude that. And that's that's a definitional thing that is tangential to the main argument that money has so dominated um, the operation, it takes so much money to run all this, uh, plus we have this horrible campaign finance system in this country that means you cannot be a candidate for an important office uh, of either major party unless you have big money behind you. Hmm. And how do you get big money behind you? Hmm. By making tacit deals. Yeah. There were two professors from Northwestern and, and Princeton, Gillen's, and Page, who did a tabulation of 
hundreds of votes over about a two-decade period, and they correlated that with what the uh, opinion polls said at the time about that particular issue, whether it was universal health care or should we spend more money on the military or should we cut Social Security and all these sorts of things, should we deregulate the banks. And they found overwhelming evidence that the uh, votes cast by members coincided with what elite interests wanted. If they overlapped with what the public wanted, it was just coincidental. Uh, it just happened to be that the interests of the public and the elites happened to be aligned at that given time. But whenever there was a difference, the elites prevailed. If you knew how real this was, you would be crapping your pants. They came to Trump and they said that the, 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 the deep state, the older elements of it, Bush-connected groups. And they said, just say you'll work with us and just say you'll listen to us some and we will let you win. You are the winner. And Donald Trump told them no. The American people are going to decide. And they said... Okay, buddy. Okay. That kind of just leads me to this big debate that's now broken out in the mainstream where suddenly pundits and columnists are, are talking about this concept of the deep state. Um, and what's really interesting about it is actually how Trump's um, supporters have used this idea of the deep state in his favor to try and say, hey, Trump is going up against the deep state and the deep state doesn't like him. And as someone He's some Sir Galahad uh, <laughs> against the evil uh, deep state. <laughs> of course, it completely ignores the fact that, I mean, one... He's a product of it, that whole New York, you know, high finance uh, world is one adjunct of the deep state. Second, he showed it to us with his uh, cabinet picks for anything to do with the economy. And third, um, he's advocating a 10% increase in military spending. How could this guy be opposed to it? Well, it's because of his own personal failings and what's, what we don't see that may be on his tax returns. And I can understand why somebody in the CIA or the NSA um, watching all these connections with Russia would be concerned. Um, I'm kind of concerned. Um, Flynn... <laughs> lied and obstructed for months, ever since the summer, when journalists figured out he was at that dinner with Putin in December 2015, of what was he paid? 
Now, it just came out in the New Yorker, according to David Remnick, $40,000. Hmm. Now, is there an appearance of a tacit quid pro quo? I don't know. Now, the problem with looking at this as poor, poor innocent snowflake Trump and, and Flynn are <laughs> up against this terrible octopus, well... Their actions to date show, if anything, they're reinforcing it with the wall building, the surveillance, the treatment of immigrants, and so forth. This is stuff the deep state would never have tried to get away with just for appearance's sake. They thrive on a kind of normality that this is just, you know, democracy and everybody can go back to sleep. He's sort of heightening the contradictions, maybe. Hmm. Um, but what happens if the Glenn Greenwalds of the world get their wet dream come true and Trump prevails over the deep state and subjugates it to his will? Do you think he's going to use it in some sort of benign fashion? I think something that you just touched on is really interesting in terms of heightening the contradictions. So even if Trump is not necessarily, um, he's clearly not someone who is is a stranger to the ways of the deep state. He, you know, he he's comes from from inside of it, and so do so many of his administration appointees. That's but right. they seem to be heightening these contradictions. I guess the question really is, why are it's they? It's partly an appearance thing, in that if you look at a Bob Gates, the former Secretary of Defense or John Brennan, the CIA director, these guys come across as these very sober, thoughtful, technocratic types who are, after considerable thought, are coming out with well-considered opinions about what's in the national interest. I mean, never mind that they stretch the truth to sometimes uh, questionable lengths. They cover it with, you know, hedging and qualification, and, well, it might turn out this way and it might turn out that way. Whereas Trump, he lies so exuberantly, and his whole persona is so vulgar, I can understand... They're upset, one, because it's just not within the the bounds of ordinary decorum and political life. And the other, he threatens to give the whole game away. Um, does the White House believe there's such a thing as the deep state that's actively working to undermine the president? Well, I think that there's no question when you have eight years of, of one party in office uh, that there are people who um, stay in government affiliated with, you know, joined and, and continue to espouse the agenda of the previous administration. So I don't think it should come in any surprise that there are people that burrowed into government during eight years of the last uh, administration and, you know, may have believed in that agenda and, and can want to continue to seek it. I don't think that should come as a surprise to anyone. And will the director of the CIA or the DNI have a presidential mandate to seek these people out and fire them or purge them from I the government? The, the CIA does not, that's not part of the CIA's mandate under any circumstances. Um, so, no on that one. 
So that's interesting. So, I mean, what you're saying is that the reason, I mean, one of the reasons that the deep state, or, the, or there appears to be this conflict between Trump and the deep state, and but but actually what you're saying is Trump is not really outside the deep state, but he represents a certain element of it or a certain he, He's kind of a mutated gene of the deep state, let's say. You've got this mutated gene, which is a part of the deep state, which is now saying, no, we need to change the way we do things. And, the, and, and actually, the rest of the deep state is like really upset about it and saying, but why are you giving the game away? And that, right. the con- and so what you're saying is the conflict is not really what so much of the media is talking about. I mean, right. to some extent, to some extent, and I think is, these but- people, in their own minds, they see themselves as patriotic custodians of the national interest, and yeah. they see uh, uh, Trump as this sort of golem who's, who's kind of shambling through the marketplace, you know, knocking over the stalls. People who have not been um, politically active. My daughter uh, went to a political rally uh, on the mall in Washington. That's the first political thing she's really done, other than vote. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and she says that her friends, uh, using social media, what was the norm? The norm was uh, snapping a selfie or a picture of what you ate at some hip restaurant in Georgetown, and you know, sharing that on Facebook. Now they're sharing articles about politics. Mm. She told me that unbidden. So yeah. And I get that impression from a number of people that uh, there's a lot of people stirring and, and and getting worked up. Now, I'm not going to predict what will happen. Uh, activity isn't the same as results, hmm. so we'll have to see. I mean, do you think that the direction of I mean, obviously, the public is very, uh, much of the public, um, obviously not Trump's own supporters, but much of the public, American public, are concerned about Trump, but not necessarily aware of the issues. They're not aware of all the implications, but they know something is wrong. And another way to look at this is the deep state is kind of a uh, a malevolution of liberal democracy. Hmm. There, it's the illiberal elements of liberal democracy, uh, such as our, you know, militarized foreign policy, entrenchment of wealth, and so forth, that causes us to be what the economist now rates as a flawed democracy. Hmm. But is it the worst of all worlds? No, most people uh, go about their lives most of the time, and they're not hauled by the police on some uh, transparently phony charge. I say most people most of the time. It's not North Korea on the one hand, and it's not some sort of gang 
anarchy like Somalia. There could be worse things than the deep state as we have known it. And possibly we're about to find out. Mm. We're, we're about to see deep state 2.0 as, uh, as modified by Donald Trump. So this really brings me to a question about Trump's, in terms of Trump's relationship with the deep state, and we've spoken about the conflicts and, and you know, how he represents a kind of a coalition of people who are clearly disgruntled. And the deep state right. in turn, or, or, or the traditional deep state, is also equally disgruntled and concerned. How did we get to this point where, where we're seeing the deep state, I mean, this kind of, this, this, this breakdown happening inside the deep state? I mean, did anybody see this coming in some way? Did, any, did anybody, um, were there signs of not, this on the horizon? I'm not sure I was a prophet. Uh, maybe I was just a little too premature when I saw the 9-11 attacks you know I joked that what the planes did was they tore a a big hole in the fabric of the space-time continuum and they kind of put us into a bizarro world where people were terrified out of all proportion to the actual threat. I mean, it wasn't an existential threat like 4,500 Russian nukes. Um, And they allowed their fears to be played like a Stradivarius uh, by the powers that be. Then they got into Iraq which was this horribly disillusioning experience. They, we thought we were going to be the, the Avenger uh, who took out this evil Saddam Hussein, and it turns out we were simply putting uh, growth medium into a Petri dish. Um, and then came the 2008 crash, which I thought would have been a defining experience like the Great Depression. Um, But nothing seemed to happen. The banks got bailed out. They returned to profitability. Uh, A lot of people got their houses foreclosed. Uh, But otherwise, life continued, I thought. But all these things must have built up into some sort of public mood of anger and resentment and just a sort of blind lashing out that uh, someone with very great demagogic skills whose name ID was already about 100% could use a thin veneer of fake populism to create what appeared to be a populist movement, but was really just entrenching further and in a more catastrophic way the very worst uh, features of the status quo. George Bush's tax cuts uh, combined with 
deregulation of the banks helped create the real estate and, and equities bubble that burst in 2008. Hmm. Uh, Trump's planned tax cuts are three times the size. He wants to get rid of regulations right, left, and center. Um, I think he's setting us up for, you know, something that looks like those old silent newsreels of the Roaring Twenties with the rich people dancing the Charleston, and there's going to be a terrible blowout. Mm. Or at least I see a big potential of that. Do you think that, um, I mean, recently George George W. Bush has actually been doing the rounds, essentially, you know, giving some kind of mild criticism of Trump and defending freedom of the press. What do you make of that, someone who's, I mean, you were inside of of this, and now you're seeing Trump. I mean, talk about strange new respect. (laughs) Um, You know, this guy was the bogeyman of the left for eight years. And now he's coming across like Pericles of Athens or something compared to Trump. I mean, it just shows you how far we've slid in eight years. Hmm. If people thought, well, nothing could be as bad as Bush. (laughs) And it appears they spoke too soon. Yeah. So, I mean, where do you think this is Do you think that there's a chance that this this project, you know, Trump's project, will somehow unravel, you know, in the context of all of this deep state stuff? I mean, is there a chance that this is going to unravel? Or, or who is going to win? You know, who, is there, who, is there, which coalition? As they say in basketball, it's the jump ball. I don't know. <laughs> um, you see aspects where some of the institutions uh, that sort of are deep statey, you know, like law enforcement, um, you know, these customs and immigration inspectors, uh, the Border Patrol, its union, endorsed Trump. Mm. And now I see gradually occurring what happens in authoritarian states where police, who, let's face it, they're probably disproportionately authoritarian personalities. Hmm. Plus, they have to deal with the dregs of society uh, on a more or less continual basis, which gives them a a real cynicism about citizen rights. Hmm. Under a democracy... These people are accountable to the public and to the politicians. But Trump is kind of like Hermann Goering telling the German police, your bullet is my bullet. All this signaling that's been going on has resulted in these customs and immigration people behaving in an extremely high-handed and sort of brutish fashion towards ordinary immigrants, and not just, you know, people with Arab names, uh, white Frenchman, a white Australian woman, that kind of thing, for the most trivial things. 
And I could see that really getting out of control with this kind of Gresham's law uh, of human behavior. The bad apples will sort of set the example. They'll get promoted. They'll get the plum assignments. And everyone else will be swept along. This is a really cheer-up conversation, isn't it? Anything? I mean, what would what do you think is is you know what can people do in terms of um, you know is there anything people that the American public can do in terms of dealing with? I mean, really, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. You've got Trump, you've got the deep state. You know, so what's the what can what can what can your average American do? Well, I think. Trump is partly the result of people thinking that there's nothing they can do. All politicians are the same, blah, blah. Trump's not a politician. He'll shake things up. You know, we don't know whether he's going to, but it's worth a try. And that's how he got in there. Um, People should realize, though, um, that they do have power. And part of the reason that the deep state sort of embedded itself is uh, that election participation rates in the United States are among the lowest in the Western democracies. Hmm. So people simply had taken themselves out of the game. Um, and if you look at it from a sort of Marxist perspective, they'd say, well, you know, they're they're basically the exploited ones and there's nothing they can do against the power structure and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we had a similar situation in the late 19th century. The railroad barons and the steel barons and so forth, they ran the state legislatures. They effectively ran the Supreme Court, uh, which made all kinds of rulings that corporations are people, and so on and so forth, therefore giving them, you know, all the protections of the Bill of Rights, Um, whereas workers didn't seem to have any protections. Um, But farmers, uh, iron workers, etc., they knew who was screwing them. The education level was much lower then, but they had a really good idea who was screwing them. And they agitated for reform. They formed a populist party. At that time, populism was actually progressive. Um, And over time, we got things like pure food and drug laws, wage and hour laws, the banning of uh, child labor, we got women's suffrage, uh, and other things that made life better for the average American. Hmm. And people can do it, I believe, with sustained 
agitation and organizing. 